Hello, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'd like to welcome all of you to our first lecture of 2015 when we talk about transitioning from high school into college or from high school into the world of work. And this evening, we have two wonderful guests that will be sharing this information. First, we have from the Junior Blind of America, Mr. Richard Reda. Welcome to the show, Richard. Good evening, and thank you, Dr. Bill. And also tonight, we have from UC Berkeley, we have Ann Kwong. Welcome, Ann. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. Yes, it's really, really great to have both of you here. And I know that both of you are just so so filled with so much information to help students who are transitioning from high school to college or junior college, vocational school, or to work. Um, and why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, my name is Anne, and I'm currently a fourth-year student attending UC Berkeley, majoring in psychology and minoring in education. I'm originally from Hong Kong and then moved to Los Angeles, and now I'm living in Berkeley. Wow, that is really, really impressive. So how many languages do you speak, Anne? Um, I speak Chinese um, and English. I tried learning Spanish in high school. Unfortunately, that was not very successful. Oh, I, I hear how difficult speaking Mandarin and Cantonese are, but you found Spanish to be a little more difficult, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't retain any of the things I learned. <laughs> well, how about you, Richard? Would you introduce yourself? And I know, Richard, you could speak some Spanish. Well, um, truth be told, I only speak this food that was speaking with Spanish. <laughs> um, Dr. Bill, thank you for having me on the call. I, uh, my name is Richard Reda, and um, I have been involved with CCLVI on and off for the past, I'd say, 10 years, and I'm honored to have um, the opportunity to be on the call as a consumer of the organization and as a representative of Junior Blind of America. And um, if, if I may, I want... I, I, encourage you, and during the course of the interview, to talk to Dr. Bill and to the audience about the, the support group that you and your folks are starting in Los Angeles, which I find to be really fascinating. So at some point when it comes up, if you could bring up Survivor Thrive, that would be great. Thank you. That that That's going to be something to be really very, very nice. Well, again, I want to thank both of you for sharing your time. And I think this is a very, very important topic that often is overlooked. And I'm really, really grateful to Ayers LA for recording this. For many of you who may not be familiar with Ayers LA, Ayers LA is a organization that records these particular types of programs for us, as well as they have professional readers who read magazines, and they're all available to those who have low vision at www.airsla.org. That's www.airsla.org, and it will also be on the CCLVI website. Well, Richard, why don't you begin by telling us, first of all, what what is your job responsibilities that you perform at the Junior Blind as you are involved in helping high school students transition 
to go to college or to get work. Uh, yes, and thank you, Dr. Bill. Um, I, I will start by saying that the job that I have now, uh, I was led to this job by first having been a rehabilitation counselor for Department of Rehabilitation in California and working with the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco and, and then back to Junior Blind three years ago. Uh, as, a, as a young youngster in my teens, I grew up in Los Angeles, in East Los Angeles and Whittier, in, attended Braille Institute and later on Junior Blind. So it was kind of an honor to be asked to work for Junior Blind 25 years later after receiving services as a young adult, as a teenager, and in, in expanding services that are of the transition nature throughout California. So in my current role as Director of Transition Services, I what I essentially do is I oversee um, staff in Northern California as well as staff in Southern California that provide direct programming to high school students as young as age 16 to young adults as age up to age 23 or 24 who are preparing to enter into the world of work um, by way of high school, an expanded high school, and or having graduated college. So we're providing a lot of what is known out there as the expanded core curriculum, topics that include pre-employment, career readiness, uh, things that are in, gaining independent living skills, even rec and leisure to round out the South. So we cover a variety of topics in week-long and weekend-long workshops year-round. Uh, and, and our summer's emphasis are, is more on employment where we're working with students to get internships for five to six weeks in the month of July, and they reside on our campus. So every month we're, we're doing something that's getting students ready for college, for high school, the world of work, living independently, applying for scholarships, and, and just being more independent, being more self-sustaining. That is fantastic. And for those students in high school who have low vision, do they get in touch with you by simply calling the junior blind, or how would they know about you and the program that you have? Are they automatically notified by their counselors at high school? Uh, you know, it's a little bit of everything. I, I, I guess our number one referral would be the Department of Rehabilitation. We work with counselors who have students on their caseload that are opening their cases at 16 or 17, in some cases when they're older, or when they've lost their vision after 20 or 21, and they're referring them to us to prepare them for the world of work, uh, the world of higher education, uh, as well as to meet others who are visually impaired. So often students come to us who are happen to be the only blind or low vision person on their campus. Uh, we also receive student referrals through outreach through various venues. Uh, we collaborate with the Braille Institute. We'll attend the Braille Challenge. We'll attend conferences and just network with teachers and the visually impaired. And in fact, I'm, I'll be in Los Angeles as part of my job this week to do outreach in Orange County to high schools this and next week uh, all over the Southland to talk to students about what the services are that we provide. Wow, that's wonderful. Now, you mentioned uh, the Department of Rehabilitation. Uh, what is the Department of Rehabilitation? Uh, the Department of Rehabilitation has been around since 1963. It's uh, a department. Every state in the United States has a Department of Rehabilitation. They 
may call it vocational rehabilitation. It might be under the Department of Education or, in some states, the Department of Labor. What DOR essentially does, it provides consumers who are disabled and who are blind and low vision the opportunity to uh, return to work or receive skills and training that will help people who are visually impaired and disabled acquire work skills. So if you're a young adult, uh, you would be, or if you're anybody, you would be paired with a counselor who uh, in many ways is like a social worker and they will connect you with the resources you need to be successful, whether it's purchasing magnification devices, low vision aids, computer technology, some assistance with college tuition, uh, or just money for books and supplies, or to for readers or note-takers. Department of Rehabilitation will outfit the consumer who's eligible for services with these types of services so that they can get through high school, or, I'm sorry, get through college and as well as get to work. When you're ready for work, they're going to, in most situations, pair you up with a job developer if you are needing assistance with updating your resume as well as interviewing etiquette and then assisting you in getting that job. And there's, is there any fee to become a client of the Department of Rehabilitation, or is that a free service? It, there's a no-cost service, and they do often take into consideration uh, some of your own financial assets. Now, if you are a recipient of SSI or SSDI, you most always often meet the, the, the category for most needs to receive services at no cost. Uh, in some situations where people have income or have a family that has certain assets, they will take those into consideration. But for the most part, there is no fee to receive services from Department of Rehabilitation from the day you are assessed to be de to be determined eligible for services. Um, there, there is no cost. That is just so wonderful, and I know that uh, here in Southern California, for example, uh, there are many agencies such as the Center for the Partially Sighted where they do have doctors and other professionals. And if you have low vision, they will actually provide to you a low vision examination at no charge. It's absolutely free. And they will then prescribe all the different types of visual aids that you might need. If you need telescopic glasses, you need sunglasses, you need reading glasses, you need computer glasses, all of these types of things can then be prescribed for you, and the Department of Rehabilitation will pay for those for you. Also, the Department of Rehabilitation may also authorize an assistive technology evaluation where you could then try all the latest in computers, video magnifiers, software magnification, braille notes, and then whatever they feel would be the best for you, they will recommend that to the Department of Rehabilitation and that is also something that you may receive. So for for many of our patients who do come to our clinic as well as other clinics uh, throughout the country, people just love the Department of Rehabilitation because they really are very, very helpful in getting you the equipment that you need. Now, Anne, when you were in high school, were you aware of these particular programs such as the STEP program at the Junior Blind of America or were you a client of Department of Rehabilitation when you were in high school? So I was very fortunate to have attended a high school where there was a resource room um, for visually impaired students. So 
so I was pretty much much mainstreamed. All of my classes, I attended class with um, generally um, sighted children and such forth in high school. Um, but since they have a resource room, the uh, resource teacher had a lot of knowledge and information about programs like Department of Rehabilitation and such forth. So I was connected very early on um, at age 16 um, to the Department of Rehabilitation. And they actually um, suggested I get one of those free consultations at the Center for the Partially Cited for um, Equipment Evaluation. And that was how I actually um, received my Braille note and my monocular, which I'm still using today for school. Wow. Um, yeah, so those consultations are very helpful. Um, and it is also through the Department of Rehabilitation that I was referred to the Junior Blind of America, which uh, Richard spoke about earlier. And I attended several of their step weekend workshops um, in which they talked about interview etiquette, um, they talked about assistive technology, and all of that information was very helpful for me. Um, and I think that exposed me to different opportunities that are available after high school as well. Um, for me personally, I decided to go straight into university after high school. Um, and I think one of the things that um, I feel like the Junior Blind of America offered a lot of services for me to transition. But um, personally, I feel like my parents didn't have those services and to help them transition and to know what's ahead. And uh, Richard mentioned earlier that um, I actually co-founded a support group and mentoring program called Survive or Thrive, uh, which is an experience-based support group for visually impaired youth and their families. We emphasize on family to help them transition because, um, in my opinion, I feel that as students are transitioning, parents, families are also transitioning as well. And so our workshop pretty much talk about um, what is after high school. So how do you plan goals? What are possible options, exposure? And we provide translation um, for parents in different languages, primarily Spanish, because Los Angeles is a pretty diverse area. There's lots of Spanish speakers and um, people who speak other languages like Chinese, Vietnamese, etc. Wow, that's really, really impressive. And as far as uh, your support group that you founded here in the Los Angeles area, how do people sign up or learn information so that they know when is there going to be a meeting and where might be a meeting? Um, because the group is basically co-founded by five college students, we recently founded the group back in 2012, so it's a pretty new um, organization support group. And um, so far, we've been connecting with Braille Institute and um, existing organizations out there to help promote um, the existence of this group. And uh, we host workshops twice a year, and we also have a mentoring program. And primarily, we've been reaching students through the Los Angeles Unified School District as well as through Braille Institute. And so if I have a student say that the student is an 11th grader in high school and is really confused and lost, um, you might have a, a mentor who might be able to team up with that person? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, for any student, we basically have students ranging from approximately 12 years old all the way to community college. 
And what we provide is we match up the student and his or her family guardian. And depending on the age of the student, the student has um, a choice to decide, determine how involved they wish their parents to be. And we will match up the family with a mentor and kind of go over various options, refer them to different services like Braille Institute, Junior Blind of America, if they're not Department of Rehabilitation Clients, tell them about the wonderful services that um, is offered. Just expose them to the various opportunities and resources that are out there because that is so important to helping students or anybody really achieve. You know, and I agree with you completely. Um, as, as, as you may or may not know, um, I'm an eye doctor who became blind. And as I was diagnosed with my eye disease, I became so isolated. I didn't want to leave my home. I didn't want people to see me. I was embarrassed that maybe I might trip and fall or not recognize someone's face who was waving at me. And as I more and more isolated, uh, there was so much more that I never, never learned. And I think that as you recommend, you have to get out there and meet people because if you meet others, then it makes it so much easier to gain that information as to how to become independent, how to go to college, how to get a job. I think you are so right. Is there a um, contact number for any of those who want to get in touch with your support group? Yes. Um, we have a number and a website as well as basically Facebook, YouTube, email, pretty much a lot of forms of communication. Um, our phone number is 213-537-7884. And the email is basically SOTZI2012 at gmail.com. Okay, S-O-T-V as in vision? Yes, I as in visually impaired. <laughs> okay, so S-O-T-V-I? At, at gmail.com. Gmail.com. And when is your next meeting that you're going to be having? Usually have we have meetings during summer as well as winter breaks because um, as we're all college students, that's when we have break to go home back to Los Angeles. Um, there's no set date for the next meeting yet, but it would probably be in June. Okay. Gosh, that's wonderful. You know, Richard, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you to talk about a little bit is the the problems that parents, parents of children with vision impairment often have a very, very difficult time letting their child leave. I, I see this very, very frequently when we have high school students and we begin to tell them about colleges and where would you like to go. And there's many parents who say, oh, no, no, he's going to stay home. He's going to stay home. He needs to stay home with us. And I think that there's many reasons. Sometimes the parents may want the child to stay home because that child is able to speak English, whereas the parents do not speak English very well. Other times, I, I believe that we have had patients where the parents don't want the child to leave because they want to make certain that the supplemental security income each month comes back to the house and not Very true. with that, that student. What are, what are some of the difficulties and misunderstandings that 
you have observed that maybe parents don't quite understand? Well, you know, Dr. Bill, I, you nailed it. I think it's it's a lot of just the parents sheltering or not knowing that their child can thrive out there, can really be successful with the right support. They, I think what Anne's doing, it, it, it's profound because it, it's connecting not just the students like we had Junior Blind, but it's really dialing in the parents to all these resources that are out there statewide or wherever it is. If, if we could replicate what we do and what Anne's group does nationwide or, or have a, a, a platform for it, I think it could really have some far-reaching impact. And I think it's, it's the culture that comes into play. And I'm sure you can speak to that with the different groups you, you see. But also, it, it, when I was a counselor um, at the School for the Blind for rehab, or for part of the time as a DOR counselor, we saw a lot of students going there and, and being told that they were going to stay at home to the 25 or 26 because the families wanted that SSI check and they wanted to help pay the rent because they were low income and that's, that's all they could afford. So I think... It's essentially what you said, and I don't know, Anne, if you want to add to that, but that's that's where where it stems from. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, and definitely, Richard, when you mentioned culture, that has a very wide implication. Um, a lot of families are nervous, hesitant, especially about their children going far away. And sometimes due to the culture, there's a gender bias associated as, uh, with that as well. And I think just um, like you had previously mentioned, letting parents know that if their child does go farther away from home, um, we can survive um, and thrive. We're not going to be, oh, my goodness, I'm lost and there's no services out there. Uh And I personally feel like um, in the beginning, my parents had some of the anxieties and fears as well. Parents, I feel, mean well, um, but sometimes they're actions may not be um, the most beneficial for if you think about long-term wise. And so my parents in the beginning were, you should go to UCLA because that is closer to home, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I think as they came to, we were fortunate they came to visit Berkeley, they came to know the campus and know, oh, if I come here, there's different programs, different people that I can um, ask for assistance. It's not like I'm swimming in the ocean by myself. You know, that that is so wonderful that your parents were able to keep their ears open to listen and learn and to, to visit uh, UC Berkeley so they understood what it was going to be like for you. I also could tell you that we have had families where the parents just stated, there's no way that my child is going to succeed in college. How is she going to succeed if she can't see? How's my son going to succeed in college if he can't even drive a car? There, there's so much common uh, myths out there where parents don't believe that their child will be able to achieve by graduating from college or, or getting a job. And how is it that you address that when you have parents who make those sorts of comments to their children? And it really hurts their children's uh, self-esteem. Richard? Yeah, no, it, it really does. I mean, at, at a young age, I was I was connected to both Braille Institute and Junior Blind. And I think by being allowed, afforded these opportunities by the organizations and my parents who said, 
we're not going to treat you any different. You're, you're going to be expected to get straight A's, and although I got B's and C's. <laughs> you're going to be expected to take out the garbage. You're going to be expected to – I think I did everything but mow the lawn and do the uh, do the laundry, which my mom held back on for a while. But 98% of everything else was – I was mainstream. I was expected to do the same. And then I did I did really outstanding things, like go to summer camp and interact with sighted and blind peers. So I had people who understood what my – Technology needs were technology needs were and what my frustrations were in, in school and in trying to get access to things and, and and this is in the 80s and 90s when there was a lot less things out there than there are now as well as having sighted peers who who I would run along with and and, and and do things with so I I was fortunate to be brought up in 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 the best of both worlds but again a lot of people aren't or a lot of parents just don't know or or fear the unknown and. and they don't get their son or daughter dialed in. As a, as a counselor for rehab, people would say, well, my child doesn't need rehab. He, there's nothing wrong with him. And I had to explain, let's take the word rehab away out of this equation. And let me explain to you what the department does. So um, it didn't seem so prescribed, so medical model. And I think if we can get out of the medical model and connect them with the resources and connect them with peers, with, with mentors, with adults who are successful in what they're doing, um, that's that's profound. You know, as you speak to that, I think it's very important also that the students, especially when they're younger, that they have that opportunity to achieve success. Now, I don't mean that they have to win first prize in a in a running race or anything, but just to be able to succeed in writing a computer program or to build something out of wood or to learn how to cook, even if you're low vision, um, and would you say that there were many things that you experienced when you were in elementary and middle school that gave you the confidence to know that you could go on and do these types of things? Because you, you, you're very, very poised, well-spoken, you're very confident, and I don't always observe that in high school students who are low vision. Well, first of all, thank you so much. Um... And I definitely agree. The earlier um, expectations are built and that visually impaired children are kind of given the chance to strive to meet those expectations, the more it builds confidence. My parents, um, in some aspects, were overprotective, like athletically. They were still kind of like, um... But um, in other aspects, such as completing house chores and academically, they never expected any less of me. Um, it's not like, oh, you're poor blind. You don't need to get, you know, good grades. You can just get C's and pass. But no, my parents were like, you need to do well. Um, visually impaired is not an excuse because you can still write, you can still read. So we expect the same of you. And we expect you to wash dishes and do things, do chores around the house and help out as well. And so I was not treated uh, differently in those um, areas of life. And I think that definitely helped me build confidence. And uh, one clear instance I can remember is my parents always said, if you fail, it's okay, you can try learning. The first time I washed dishes, I put the plug in the wrong way, so the sink got clogged. But next time, I knew better. So kind of like trial and error. If I was never given the opportunity to try and fail, I wouldn't know how to do it the right way. And so even sometimes 
mistakes can be a good learning experience and help build confidence. You're so right. I think that when you make mistakes, those are the best ways to learn because you'll never forget it when you make a mistake like that. Just like the one day I went to work and one of my patients said, Dr. Bill, why are you wearing two different color shoes? (laughs) (laughs) From that time on, I always checked my shoes very carefully and I took the time to label, you know, what color were my shoes. Now, Richard... How was it that you were able to get an idea of what career you wanted? Because I know that many students who are in transition, they said, well, yeah, I, I really don't know what I want to do. I, I, I don't know uh, if I want to go to college or if I want to just get a job or uh, maybe I just want to use my social security money and live off of this. Um, how did you find your goal? Well, my I, mine was uh, I guess soul searching and journey, and it took me it took me quite a while because I I am the first person in my family to go to college, and my mom always told me as a young young person you you should go to college. Don't let what we didn't do prevent you or, or make you feel as if you shouldn't have to go to college. We want the best for you, and, and that was always instilled in me. However, my folks and my brother we we all work at a young age and my brother was working and I was working at 16 so we had a, there was a strong work ethic in the family so my my first job was working at fast food and, and I, I tell students this story I'll give you the abbreviated version it was the best job and the worst job I ever had best job I ever had because it was an allowance that I was earning it was my own money that I was earning five bucks an hour and that's what minimum wage was 20 years ago and it was it was great because I, I could do whatever I want with the money I earned, but then it was the worst job I ever had because I was, you know, flipping burgers and fries and coming home with grief on my face every day and having to wear a silly uniform. But it taught me discipline and it taught me, it, it really taught me after five months is, you know, if I don't go to college, this is the only kind of job I'm going to be qualified for. And I really want to do more in this world than flip burgers. And, you know, it, it's not to look down on those who do that job, but it was for me, like, oh, no, I, I can't do this the rest of my life. So it put fire in my belly. It, it really fueled me to really uh, pursue higher education with a little more um, gumption, if you will. And so I I had a very supportive rehab counselor because I think of the five years it took me to decide what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a recreation therapist. I wanted to be... Um, I wanted to be a history teacher, and then I, I landed on counseling. I always worked with youth and young adults and people with disabilities in college. And so I, to me, it just kind of naturally fell in my lap as I was doing the types of jobs that I wanted to pursue. So my career path eventually became counseling, vocational counseling. And, and shortly after I graduated in 2001, I, I landed a job with the Department of Rehab, which, which I felt was awesome. Um, so, you, so for me, it was just a lot of trial and error. And then the other thing I should say is what re- really helped build my confidence is just traveling. I, I'd get out there and go hiking or I'd go um, canoeing with just different organizations that would say, hey, let's go and do these things. And, and that really built my confidence. It, traveling is, is, I think, critical um, to building your self-confidence and knowing that you can do things in this world and um, I, I spent the summer in Washington, D.C. about 15 years ago, and I think, Anne, you did the same thing last year. So just seeing the world really helps your impression. 
How about that, Dan? Last year, you were you spent the summer in Washington, D.C.? Um, yes. Um, I was very fortunate to get an internship working with um, the Department of Defense Education Activity Division, um, working with military youth um, and children and working with the school districts overseas. So I got a taste of how policy or educational policy looks like, how the federal government works, and I actually enjoy it. So that kind of helped me solidify, oh, I want to go to graduate school in education because I'm interested in educational policy. Um, but I guess jumping back, um, when I was in high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do whatsoever. I somehow wanted to, knew that I wanted to go to college, but I didn't really know what that meant when I was in high school. Um, eventually, I got a scholarship um, that would allow me to go to college and pay for the four years of uh, university. So I was like, well, I guess after high school, I'm going to college. But even though I started attending Berkeley, I still wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to be. And I think the classes and the various internships, volunteering experiences, really also further solidified that, oh, I want to actually go into education. Um, similar to Richard, I volunteered at the Braille Institute, which I think is great. But for me personally, um, I think the first job I was doing was rewinding tapes. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I could do the same type of really repetitive work for the rest of my life. Because um, I think it's for me, I would like something a little bit more exciting and also working with people. And I think that's what really also um, further confirmed that, oh, I want to go to college. I want to do educational work, educational policy, and preferably working with parents and early intervention of children. You know, that's really amazing. And I think that both of you have really found the right career for you because I think you both are going to be just so excellent in, in each of these careers. And, it, and it's so, so important that we have this way. You guys are creating ways that we could inform young students and inform their parents to help kids to become much more successful because, as you know, um, the statistics are approximately 8 out of 10 students with low vision are not employed. And we have to we have to do something to get them employed so that they can go on and get married, have children, enjoy the finer things in life. And I think they'll be very, very successful that way. Now, we've already talked about contacting agencies such as the Junior Blind so that you could find out about a STEP program or searching for support groups such as the support group that Anne that you have started. We found out where students can get the equipment that they may need, computers and video magnifiers and low vision eye exams. But what about people who just really need to have some money? It costs a lot of money to go to college or to get this type of training. Uh, where can people go, Richard, to try to find out more information about getting money to go to school? Wow. Um, to go to, well, I mean, the, I think one of the first stops you have to make is the Department of Rehabilitation. I also think that college students who are visually impaired and blind uh, aren't exempt from financial aid. You, you, it, it's your right to apply for financial aid and see what support you'll get. I think that that's one of the first things you can do if you call it a low-hanging fruit. 
Um, some people first go for a year, like they do in Europe. They call it a gap year, and they might go join the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps. Um, they don't pay much, but they do have some income. Um, and then other than SSI, which you can apply for as at age 18 or younger in certain circumstances, it's just um, some high schools have what they call TPP, Transition Partnership Programs, at least in California, where they will provide you with the opportunity to uh, acquire a part-time job, which is either seasonal and or after school or on the weekends. And um, I don't think they traditionally have done well with placing blind people, but um, they they have gotten folks jobs at Trader Joe's and, and doing entry-level work, whether it's Walmart greeting or bagging groceries. Now, Anne, you mentioned that you did earn a four-year scholarship how did you find out about which scholarships that you could apply for? Did you contact blind organizations such as the American Council of the Blind? or uh, how, how did you find out about that scholarship that you applied for and won? Um, I'm one of those very annoying students that always went to their counselor's office and go, Hello! And so for me, <laughs> I've always visited my... Um, college and career counselor in my high school. Um, I know that in some high schools, the college and career counselor would go to classrooms and start talking to students as they become seniors in high school and say, oh, look at these scholarships or, oh, look at these employment opportunities. For me, I always went and knocked on her door and said, hi. And so um, I built a very good relationship with her, um, and we had lots of long discussions about various universities, various scholarships that are out there that I could apply for. Um, also, the Internet is a great place to search. You can find scholarships in anything. There's scholarships for visually impaired individuals, low income, just merit-based. There's also a scholarship for goalball players. Um, and so just... Um, if you really wanted to and needed some money, there's places that you can look. Um, and that's how I pretty much found my money, which I don't have to worry about um, educational finances for four years. So I was very fortunate. You know, and I think that's, again, such a smart thing you did by developing this relationship with your counselors because they are the experts. They know what's available. And if they know you or have come to know you, they're going to help you to search for those scholarships and applications that you would need to have filled out. Um, what are other things that you experienced and did, and that you feel have been so, so helpful in your success of transitioning from high school uh, into one of the finest universities in the world, and now you're going to be going to grad school? What what other types of things can you say that you have done or received help from that has really helped you to be successful? I think for me personally, um, networking with different people goes a long way. And just not being shy and talking to every single person that you meet, because you never know what types of resources, connections, um, they can advise you contact. And so that's I met Richard, and he, when I first um, was thinking about going to Berkeley, I called him, and he um, connected me with people that's up here. He um, introduced me to the lighthouse and such forth. And so knowing different people who actually has information that you don't have 
can really help with a lot of things. And also the same when I first came into Berkeley, um, speaking with the counselor who works at the Disabled Students Program, um, and that counselor knowing, oh, if you wanted to do an internship, you should try to contact this person, or if you wanted more financial assistance, contact this department. And so networking and building these relationships with various individuals really helped me um, find out where to get the resources that I needed. I'd like to say something, too. This is Betty. Um, I um, think also the financial aid office at your uh, at the college that you're applying to would also be a major resource. Yeah, so, that's, uh, that's, 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 that's my that's, two cents. <laughs> yeah, thank so. you, Betty. And everybody, um, hold on. We will be opening up to questions from the audience in just a moment, okay? But thank okay. you, Betty. That's that's very helpful. Uh, Richard, what other things and suggestions can you share uh, in the last few minutes here before we open it up to questions from our audience? Well, I'll, I'll share an anecdote with you, and I think it's and thank you, Dr. Bill, and and it nailed it. It's it's all about networking. I tell I, I told students all the time when I talk with them. You know, you can't be in the business of being shy and bashful. As an 18, 19, 20-year-old or any age, I was really – the hardest part for me was transitioning from high school to college. Uh, I, I really did go through the school of hard knocks because I, my parents were supportive, but I didn't have – I didn't know what community college was going to be like, and it, and it really was a hard first semester. I didn't have – I didn't know what networking was until the next year – and I didn't have a lot of connections, and it, it was it was difficult. I had an IEP team who who talked about me, but not to me. And it, it was you know a different generation ago, and and that's why I'm such a big advocate for students being involved in their IEP, not letting that be overwhelming for them, and, and giving them a voice where on how they want to steer their future, really putting students in the driver's seat. And again, it's all about networking. I think the antidote that I, I use is. When I was hired by Junior Blind um, three years ago, three and a half years ago, uh, it, it changed a lot in the 20 years that I had, you know, at last was there as, as a student, as a camper, as a camp counselor. And ha having known me for as a rehab counselor in Northern California, they said, okay, we're going to hire you. You can go to Northern California now. It, it was like starting a, a nonprofit from scratch because not a lot of people knew what Junior Blind was in Northern California. So it was up to me to network, to get other organizations to come together at the table and say, this is what we're doing. We're doing a transition program. Can we use your facilities? Can we partner? So it gives you, uh, it gives you some, some press time. It gives us some space, and, and it's, everyone wins. And uh, to the state, because of that, we've gotten space at – the Ed Roberts campus in Berkeley, the Society for the Blind in Sacramento. People know about Junior Blind as if it's not just in Los Angeles anymore. And uh, I think that's just because of networking and collaborating and, and making it a win-win for everybody. I think that's really great advice. It's really great advice. And I would say that even for myself, after I became blind, totally blind, I found the best way to move forward with either trying to achieve a goal or try to find out information is by reaching out and meeting other people. And I find that others who are low vision or blind, they're 
more than happy to share with you their advice. People love to give you that advice, and it becomes very, very useful. So I thank both of you for all the information that you shared so far. And at this time, I'd like to ask the audience, if you'd like to ask a question to Richard Retta or to Anne Kwong, go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six, and you can ask a question. Or if you just have some other advice, such as Betty had, uh, you may just go ahead and share some of that advice over the phone. So go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six. Is there anybody who has a question for Richard or Anne? Is Junior Blind of America, is that uh, limited to California? Yes. Uh, our headquarters are in Los Angeles, and, and we have satellite offices in Northern California. Do you work with any other states by chance? I'm sorry, do I work with any other states? Uh, Indirectly, when we do our annual Junior Blind Olympics, we do bring in students from other states such as Arizona, Utah, Colorado. But we don't have any physical office space in any other states at this point. Thank you. Hi, is there another question out there? This is Andrea from Connecticut, and um, I just want to first say thank you to both of you for being so enlightening and so well-spoken and, and sharing your stories. But I also want to just reiterate that having been raised by the most amazing mom in the whole world who didn't allow my brother and my blindness to be um, a, a, a holding point. She never she never let that hold us back. And she started a parent group, in, was instrumental in starting a parent group here in Connecticut. And I think that the involvement of parents is so critical because if parents don't understand or don't know better than to to not believe in the future for their children. And they're gonna and they're gonna project that onto their kids so early. And that's just so difficult to overcome as an adult if you've been if you've been um hamstringed by your family for your whole life. And so it's just kudos to everyone for, for recognizing that people who are blind as young adults need to be in the driver's seat and parents have got to be on board or they're just going to really, really cause real difficulties for their kids. So Thank that's, you. that's all I have to say. Thank you. No, that is very, very important. We we need to develop the self-esteem of these kids. Do you have the... the um, Address email addresses uh, that you the laorg.org email address that uh, was mentioned earlier in the show. Yes. So to listen to this podcast and other programs that we've had, you go to www.airsla.org. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Does anybody else have a question? Okay. Well, I want to, at this time, ask Richard, would you please give your contact information? Sure. And sorry about that background noise. I don't know where it's coming from. My last name is spelled R-U-E-D-A. Telephone number is... 